Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge in sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. And here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. This is the Closers Inner Circle podcast with host Denise Griffiths and Ben Gay III. And every Wednesday, we are your gateway to exploring the intricate world of sales and mastering the art of closing deals. And today we are opening up the Closers Part 2 to page 59, excuse me, which is titled, The Real Objection is You. You see, in the world of sales, it's imperative to familiarize yourself with your product or your service to such an extent that you can effortlessly anticipate and address. This is important. You can effortlessly anticipate and address any objections that may arise. And yes, every product or service has its share of built-in objections, but the ultimate obstacle lies within you the salesperson. And Ben is going to unveil why understanding this truth is paramount. Morning, Ben. This is one of my favorite chapters in the closers part two. And I have to tell you, and you and I have talked about this. I have seen so many people up close and personal actually talk themselves out of what should have been an easy sale. And I'll always be the one hanging off to the side, just whispering, shut up, stop talking, stop. <laughs> oh, darn, it's too late. <laughs> so you just reminded me of something my father used to say. Somebody would say to him, well, to make a long story short, he'd always say, it's too late. Yeah, that's exactly. And you know, they're lying to you the minute they say that. Or here's another one. Well, you know, I'm I'm going to be truthful now. Oh, geez. No, <laughs> I'm going to tell you the truth. Well, you just lied to me. So that's over. We're done. Yeah. I've <laughs> but... been lying for an hour, but now. I'm going to tell you the truth. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. So before we get rocking and rolling here, tell people if, if they're just new to this part of the podcast, who you are and why I think you are so important and why the world thinks you are so important because you are a living sales legend. So let's talk about that just a little bit. Well, thank you very much. If you live long enough, you become a legend because other people aren't around to refute you anymore. So, well, there's that. Uh, <laughs> I thought of that. Longevity, yeah, longe longevity has its place, to quote somebody, I think Patton in a movie or somebody. Anyway, uh, I, I got into, I, I've been selling uh, since I, I, don't, I don't remember a time when I wasn't selling, dragging Christmas cards around in my little red wagon or whatever. But I got my first victory at age 10 when I won a citywide, this is Atlanta, Georgia at the time, 
<clears throat> a citywide contest selling Krispy Kreme donuts, and I won a, a red Columbia bicycle, and I was hooked. I thought, oh, this is good. And then uh, my father conned me into starting to mow lawns. I quickly discovered in Atlanta I didn't want to mow lawns in the uh, hot summer. The hot and the heat and humidity of Atlanta was a little much for me. So he said, well, why don't you sell the jobs and inspect them and collect the money for your friends and split the money? And I said, I don't think my friends would work for that. And he said, sure, they would. Uh, a, they don't have the courage to ask for the job. Uh, B, if they did, they'll undersell themselves. So what you do is you tell the, the people that you'll mow their lawn, uh, you'll personally inspect it, and they can pay you what they think it's worth. That's a hard deal to turn down. Well, we did good jobs, and people aren't going to look you dead in the eyes and say, that's a $1 job. So what they generally gave us was two or three times more than I would have ever asked, which was more than enough to split with my friends. And they were happy and I was happy and I was out of the personally mowing lawn business. So again, commission selling. Uh, and then my career went on all the normal things you do. I was a bag boy at a grocery store. I was a a uh, young salesman at Macy's in Atlanta. It was called Davison's, but it was Macy's. And uh, then a manufacturer's rep hired me to work for him instead of him calling on me as a assistant buyer in the housewares department. So that put me out on the road like a grown-up uh, in a car traveling around the Southeast calling on people. And in that position, my fear of selling just sort of went away. I mean, I was a I was the youngest guy in the various motels I stayed in by far, 18, 19 years old. <clears throat> but I was making as much as they were making, had a brand new Buick, and I was rolling. And then I got married, and reality uh, raised its ugly head. I'm My not laughing wife, at you. I'm laughing with you. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you, you know. I do. <laughs> You're, you're one of the perpetrators. So anyway, she wanted to go. She, she's passed away now, a lovely lady named Marsha. But she wanted to become a nurse. That meant putting her through nursing school. That meant being there more and having the money to pay the tuition, et cetera. So I had to get serious about business. So I, little, I opened the Atlanta Journal-Constitution one day, uh, the September, Wednesday, September 15th, 1965. And I started going through the employment things and I found out, this is gonna come as a shock to you, Denise, there was nothing in the employment thing that I was qualified to do. I was a high school dropout. I didn't know how to type. <laughs> they didn't let boys type in those days. And uh, went all the way through the one ads. It got down to psychologist. I couldn't spell it. Never mind. Be one. Uh -huh. and, uh, Sorry. That's funny. So just as I was about to throw the newspaper in the trash can, I saw the next section, which was business opportunities. I didn't know what a business opportunity was, uh, but I read down. And the first ad said, if you know anything about marketing plans and want to make more money, uh, dialed this number. Well, I didn't know what a marketing plan was, but I did need to make more money. So I went into a phone booth 
right outside of a grocery store I was calling on for my father and dialed the number. My dad was semi-prominent in Atlanta, so I figured trading on the name Ben Gay and the food brokers company, Brown Gay, uh, wouldn't be a bad idea. So when the gentleman got on the phone, his name was Bill Dempsey, I began to interview him to see if he was worthy of having me come to talk to him. And uh, so I, I went into my interview technique and about four or five minutes in, if that long, he said, Mr. Gay, I'm not the man standing in a phone booth answering want ads. If you're of a certain age and you've ever made a phone call out of a phone booth, it's like calling somebody from inside a trash can. There's an undeniable sound to it. He says, where are you right now? And I told him, <clears throat> he said, good, you're only about two blocks from my office. Be standing in front of my desk in 10 minutes or don't ever dial this number again. He slammed down the phone. And that's not disconnect. This is 1965. He slammed down the phone. So my running buddy, Jimmy Rucker, pulled around at that time in his car, and I jumped in the car like Robin getting into the Batmobile and said, quick, 1447 West Peachtree Street. He said, what's up? I said, we're going to be rich. My theory was, I didn't know how much it cost to run an ad, but if you ran an ad in the paper and then hung up on people who called, you were probably doing well. So about nine or ten minutes later, I went skidding up in front of the receptionist's desk, week 300, and uh, I said, hi, my name's Ben Gay. And she said, oh, yes, we were expecting you. And from behind me, I heard a laugh, and uh, uh, I turned around, and he said, Ben Gay. And I said, yes, that's my name. I was used to Ben Gay jokes by then. So I said, yes, my name is Ben Gay. What's yours? And he said, Zig Ziglar. So it turned oh. out Zig had answered was the same ad I answered. Yeah, but was he laughing at your funny name with a name like Zig Ziglar? <laughs> exactly. There's some irony um, there. I'd never never heard of him. Uh, he had not yet had his first big hit. He'd answered the same ad I did. So Jimmy Rucker, Zig Ziglar, and I all went into the office, sat down for what we thought was a job interview, and Bill Dempsey put on a little opportunity meeting for three people, you know, multi-level marketing. The company was Holiday Magic Cosmetics. We all three joined up. And uh, uh, a different story I won't bore you with today, but uh, we got off to a slow start, thank, thanks to me, and didn't make any money at all for the first six months. Money didn't even change hands. And then Bill Dempsey had a come to Jesus meeting with me, and I got on script and started doing what I was told. And we took off within, oh, uh, a month or so, we were making 10000 a month. That's 100000 today. Within a few more months, we were making 40000 a month. That's 400000 adjusted for inflation. And we were off and running. Now, and, uh, so that, let's, let me clarify real quick for the audience. You and Jimmy Rucker were partners in this, but Zig Ziglar was not. He turned out to actually be your competition. Direct, yeah, okay. direct competition. All right. And uh, we all joined together. Well, Zig had to put more in. It was $91.41 to get started. Rucker and I split the ninety-one forty-one, and Zig had to put all of his in. <laughs> so he, he was deeper into the business than we were. 
But shortly after we really got rolling, and Zig already was, he had he was 18 years older than I was. Uh, he was in the Navy the day I was born. So, uh, and he'd been speaking in churches and so on. So he took to it like a duck to water. We, or at least me, didn't. And uh, uh, But rather quickly, there was a year-long contest of sales got national. And my father had raised me that you, you work as hard as you can, as long as you can, et cetera, with what you can do and what you can accomplish. But you don't knock yourself out extra to win a television set or something. <clears throat> uh, he said, you should already be working that hard. If the television set comes along with it, fine. So this contest was a year long and nationwide. And I knew we were doing well. I mean, I looked at people around me. We were making significantly more than they were. And people were starting to ask me, you know, would you come to Charlotte, North Carolina and give a talk and, and so on. Uh, so I, 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 I knew we were doing well, but I didn't know how well. Uh, Zig, however, was highly competitive. He knew where he was in the standings day by day. I guess he called California in the office and uh, ask. So contest gets down near the end. I frankly didn't even recall that it was coming to an end, didn't recall it was still running. And we got an opportunity to give an opportunity meeting in uh, somewhere on the outskirts of Atlanta. I forget where it was. And on the last day of the contest, we went and gave that meeting. Zig, knowing that he had won the contest, had a victory party in Columbia, South Carolina that night. So he didn't produce any volume. We produced, I don't remember how much, let's just say $10,000. I don't know what it was, but $10,000. When the contest winnings were announced or who won, uh, we had won, Jimmy and I, uh, and uh, the amount we won by was the amount that we had sold the last day of the contest in that opportunity meeting. If Zig had worked and we had celebrated, Zig would have won. Well, the contest prizes were, number one, a mystery prize. I'm not sure I would have worked hard for that anyway. Then a Rolls Royce, then a Lincoln Continental, then a Thunderbird, and then steak knives or you know whatever the lesser prizes were. They flew me to California to uh, officially announced we had won. And I went out to dinner with the owner of the company and later one of my personal mentors, William Penn Patrick. And uh, he said, as you know, you won. I said, yeah, but what I win, what's the mystery prize? He said, you're going to be president of the company. And I said, oh, you could have told me that over the phone. He said, well, we currently have a president of the company who doesn't know he's going to be replaced. So that's part A. And part B I waited to see who was going to win because if somebody won that I didn't like, I was going to change the, the prize. It would have been presidency of the company. Right. So, uh, uh, and Zig and I used to laugh after that. He was frankly a little bitter. Well, he got it. a Rolls Royce though. Yeah. And that was that's sort of <laughs> the point of the, of the next little short story. He would call me, and on bad days, and, and when you're 25 years old and you're running a company that's taking in a million dollars a day, adjusted for inflation, three and a half billion. I didn't know how to read a profit and loss statement. I'm not sure I knew how to, knew how to balance my own checkbook. Um, 
there are days that you sort of wish you hadn't won. And Zig would call for one reason or another. And I say, Zig, here's the deal. Bring your Rolls Royce out here. Give me the keys to it. And I'll give you the keys to the front door of the building. And he said, oh, no, you beat me fair and square. <laughs> so he, he, he wouldn't take back the mystery prize or he wouldn't accept the mystery prize. And then oh. I went on to, you know, that still is a young person. I went oh, on, I've no. never, there's never been a day in my life from about 14 on that I wasn't selling something to somebody. And uh, that means now, let's see, 35 horses, almost, we're coming up on 60 years of day-to-day, 24-hour selling. The difference between me and a lot of sales trainers and mentors and coaches and consultants is when I teach how to sell or how to be successful in life, I'm not teaching about something I did 50 years ago. I am, but I'm also teaching about something I did that morning. Uh, you and I are talking right now, and it's 10.15 where I am in California, 10.15 a.m. I've made, oh, they're here within arm's reach, somewhere four or five sales today to people who I didn't know when I woke up. So I still sell. I've done nothing but selling my whole life, my whole life that I can remember, and I absolutely love it. And for people who work with me and study under me, I have good news for you. It is so simple. Uh, Many people, myself included, have complicated selling to make it be something you would pay to go to a seminar to learn. And I laugh about my seminar speech on how to sell. I have a 10-day version, uh, which is quite expensive. I have a five-day version, a three-day version, a one-day version, a half-a-day version, and a one-hour version. And I can give you the nuts and bolts of the 10-day version in the one-hour version. It's just simple, simple, simple. But it does require work and discipline. So you asked me a very short question, and there's my answer. Well, we always do this, and thank you. And I want two things that I scribbled them down while you were talking. When you were talking about the mowing the grass, look, I'm in the deep south, deep south. I mean, I'm 15 miles from the Gulf of Mexico as a crow flies. We're in the middle of hurricane season. You talk about hot and hotter than hell. And I still have to mow my grass in between the yard guys coming because I can hear it growing out there yeah, and like cut through oh god and i hate it i have to get up <laughs> really early in the morning mostly because i need the exercise don't we all or i get out late at night thank goodness my neighbors aren't got denise it's 9 30 at night do you mind they don't care because they're out there mowing too <laughs> we, all, <laughs> we all know when we can breathe out there but you know when you're talking about mowing this happens a lot this time of year you it pops up on the next door app. It pops up. Somebody will knock on your door. Ma'am, do you need your your grass mowed? Yeah, but no, thank you. <laughs> I just mowed it yesterday. But the <laughs> kids, and this happens without fail. They might be teenagers. They may be young adults, just had a baby. They need to make the money. They lowball themselves. And then they're in trouble within weeks because now they've got too much business. They don't have the proper equipment. They don't have the time and they disappear. And that's disappointing. Yeah. And it's disappointing. 
I would think in their soul, they've got to be disappointed. Like, well, how did I fail? This was so easy. It was just cutting grass. You didn't do the math. You didn't figure out what it is that you bring to the table, how you bring it, what it's worth. And they didn't have a manager like you. So before you embark yeah. on any kind of business, you need to do some homework. Absolutely. And my father's thing wasn't that well thought out. I, he probably thought it out in his mind from personal experience, but he didn't explain it to me. He just said, tell me to tell you what you think it's worth. I couldn't believe that because it sounded to me like, you know, I'd want five and they'd offer two. Well, uh, on some jobs I wanted five and they paid 15 or 20. One guy's, we had the, I had about 20, 25 kids working for me in the growing season on any given day. And uh, when school was out, one day we're all near my house and across the road was a beautiful old mansion. Uh, and, but the man was very grumpy and, and his yard was overgrown. And we went over and uh, one day knocked on the door, no answer. Some neighbor said he's out of town. So uh, today, somebody probably called the police and have you arrested. We decided to clean up. We didn't go in the back because it was a gate, but to do the big front yard, we uncovered uh, brick sidewalks and trails and bird baths and things that nobody knew was in there. At least I didn't. And uh, we cleaned it up. And it wasn't bright green because it hadn't been watered like it should, but it was cut like a uh, putting green all over the yard and every detail was exposed and i thought well we're either going to get shot or he's going to pay us 30 dollars or something or five bucks yeah and uh, uh and we had done a lot of work but it was literally just a lark we're all standing there with our lawnmowers pretty much done for the day i had no more assignments for him why don't we go do that type thing he came back and uh for one day, nothing was said. I said, this is not good, Dad. I'm afraid to go outside. <laughs> he lived within two houses of us across the street. When he did come back and announced his arrival, he came over and knocked on the door. And he said, I'm told that you did this. Not thank you. You did this. And I said, uh, yes, sir. I, I hope you like it. He said, I love it. And he gave me two $100 bills. I'd never seen a $100 bill. And again, adjusting for inflation from that time to now, it's more than $2,000. So we. But uh, he gave you what he thought you were worth. And I think that's what a lot of people. Exactly. Meant. And if I, if I bid the job, I would probably bid it for 20 or $30. Which, you know, which in today's money sounds sort of silly, but that's $150, $200 back then or a little more. Uh, but I let him, uh, my father told me <laughs> to let him pay me what he thought it was worth. And he thought my worth or our worth, he didn't know who did it. He just knew I was in charge, was more than I ever would have guessed. Well, everybody in the neighborhood, everybody within blocks around price started increasing because my confidence level went up. A guy just paid me $200 for a job I would have done for 20 or 30 or done and crossed my fingers. Maybe I would have done it for nothing and got sued for mowing his yard. I don't know. 
But that's a, a great example of explain the value and let them pay for the value. That it, and I think that's something that so many people miss. This one kid, going back to the lawn mowing, this one kid came by, and I don't normally answer the door. In fact, there's a sign on my door that says, unless you were expected or have been invited, do not knock on the door and do not ring the doorbell. And I'm dead serious about that. I've had yeah. during the political silly season, the only people yeah. who ignore that are politicians. And I'll stand there in the glass door and look at them. And I might make a gesture. It's been known. But I don't answer. <laughs> the door. Is, it, is, it, is the gesture less than two? It's a, yeah, it's a finger wave. <laughs> 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 but it's just so so polite. <laughs> but, but this, I happened to be outside. I think I was grabbing the mail, and this kid came by, and he had a pitiful little. Bless his heart, I wanted to help him. I did, but he had in the back of his truck, and you know, his mom sent him out. Go get a job. Get off of the team. Get get, get outside. And all he had was an old beat up lawnmower. And you know, I mean, in the South, you have to weed eat. When you mow, it looks like, you know, you're mowing down hayfield, so all that has to be yep. gotten rid of. You know, things have to be, you have to blow everything. It's not a, hey, we're going to mow your grass. You have to have the rest of the equipment and the will to wield that equipment. And bless him, he didn't. But I, I talked with him and I said, well, what what do you have? And I wasn't going to hire him. I knew I wasn't, but I wanted to know what he had in mind. He said, well, I can mow it. I said, what about the weed eating? Oh, I don't know what that is. I said, do you have a blower? No, ma'am. So, you know, I walked him through the yards and I said, this is what has to happen. If you're going to do this as a job, you're going to need to be able to walk up to people like me and say, hey, I've got everything. This is the job that you can expect from me. And I would love to do the work for you. And I mean, he was dejected at first because he knew I, I wasn't going to hire him. But he said, really, that's what I need to do. And I said, yep, that's what you need to do. And I said, when you get to that point, you come back and talk to me. He said, yeah, but you won't open the door. I said, if I see it's you, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so he was paying attention. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm actually looking forward to having him come back and knock on my door and say, hey, look, you know. Look what I got for Christmas. It may be next year. I don't know. But I hope he does follow up or at least learn to be able to present a job in a way that's going to be acceptable to the person going yay or nay. And for him, bless him, it was a it was a no because I knew all he could do was mow the grass. Well, I can do that. But he couldn't do the rest of it. You've given a great example of uh value in reverse. Um, really? See, I thought I was just Yeah, I want to buy from you. Uh, but here's what I need to buy from you. Uh, if uh, we spend a lot of time, you and I and other trainers teaching salespeople to listen. If you listen, they will tell you exactly what they want to buy and how they want to buy it. But you have to be like Nelson Mandela. He was called a dynamic listener. You told that young man, here's what I want done. Here's what you'll need uh, to have to do it. And when you have all this, come back and see me. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what a what a lay down sale that is if you're listening and really want to work. Well, I hope. 
I hope he does. I mean, it may be, he may be like me and just throws up on his own feet when it gets too hot. I don't know. <laughs> Not everybody should be out there mowing the grass. Trust me on this. But he listened and bless him. He didn't get upset. He didn't kind of slump his shoulders. And he was at that age where all of those things could have happened. But he listened. And, you know, I don't know that he took notes, but I could see it clicking behind his eyes like, oh, so if I were to somehow get a hold of the equipment that she's talking about, and I told him, I said, listen, go to the next door app, go to a pawn shop, you know, go to your grandpa's mm -hmm. garage. I mean, you don't know where you're going to find these things, but you need them. And once you have them, then you can stand up straight and say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I can do this and this and this. And when I leave, it will be a perfect job. And if it's not, you call me and I'll come back and fix it. And I think he heard there all you go. really do. That was our approach. And we had that little kicker, pay me what you think it's worth. Right. And I, you know, time dulls the memories, but I really don't believe or can't remember anyone ever stiffing us. The worst was they paid us about what I would have asked, you know, up front. If it were a five dollar job they pay you know, that I would have done for five in those days. Uh, they paid five. And so that was mildly disappointing, but they didn't stiff us. Right. It's really hard when, when you handle a customer properly, really hard for them to deliberately stiff you. And uh, and we did a few nice little things like, you know, the, the widow lady who didn't have a lawnmower and didn't have a husband anymore or whatever. We just mower lawn and go on. And, and word of that spreads. Those are those nice kids that mowed Mrs. Wiki's lawn and didn't ask for a penny. Right. Listen, my next door neighbor, God bless him. I I realized that the yard, the side yard between me and him was always mowed and I knew I wasn't doing it. So I asked him one day, I caught him outside. I said, hey, are you mowing the yard? He said, yeah, I, I um, do the front, you know, where it needs to be trimmed at the front right there at the we don't have sidewalks where i live but right there at the, the gutter the concrete gutter and i said you do that i thought my my yard guys are doing it. he said no nope, they're not they're no longer my yard guys <laughs> they really are not there you go. because yeah. i was paying them for everything to be done and they weren't doing it so i cut them loose quick like the chapter we're going to discuss it's you uh, you're the problem they are the problem they had a job you know, and you're reliable and you paid them every week, every month, whatever the deal was, and they still screwed it up. It yeah, they did. Them. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And I wanted to, before we get into the chapter, because it is a fascinating chapter, I want you to tell us how, and we're going to go into this deeper in another another episode. We've touched on it before, but once you became the president of this company, <laughs> willy-nilly whether you needed wanted or not then they brought in dr napoleon hill to mentor you let's talk about why that happened well i was doing a good job sales were up everybody either loved me or acted like they loved me <clears throat> and i was i'm a pretty quick learner i didn't know anything i couldn't spell president when i became one um, so bill patrick the owner of the company was named in one of Dr. Hill's books, one of the five greatest living Americans or something like that. And he's got all of his books somewhere in the front of, of one of the latter ones in the late 60s. 
you'll find Bill Patrick's name. So Dr. Hill came out to present him with a plaque naming him as one of the five greatest whatever. And uh, I didn't even know Dr. Hill was in the building. And uh, the uh, apparent, Dr. Hill told me the story and Bill Patrick told me the story independently. At the end of their little ceremony, Bill was walking Dr. Hill to the front door. We had a long building. Bill's office was in the very back. Mine was in the very front. They're walking down the hallway, and somewhere in that walk, Dr. Uh, Bill Patrick said to Dr. Hill, you know, I've got this young man. I'd like you to meet him. His name's Ben Gay. He's running the company. He's doing a great job, but he's young. Uh, he's 25. He's a high school graduate. And technically, he's not qualified to be doing this job, but he is. But he said, I feel that there must be times when he'd like to ask a question or admit that he's scared or whatever. And he probably won't do that willingly to me for fear he'll be fired. I I had long before I heard the term, I had imposter complex. I kept waiting for the door to my office to fly open and Bill Patrick say, I've had second thoughts. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) You (laughs) You have no business in this position. So anyway, he told Dr. Hill that he said, would you be willing to work with him? And in that short walk, they agreed to the concept that he would and the fee. And the fee I found out later that afternoon when I was signing the check to him was $50,000. That's $500,000 in today's money. And I was tag on the story. Rodney Dangerfield, the old comedian, used to talk about the uh, family had to tie a pork chop around his neck so the family dog would play with him. Well, uh, Bill Patrick had to tie a $50,000 check around my neck so Dr. Hill would be my friend. (coughs) Pardon me. But we quickly became real friends. He had a, a bedroom at the house that was the Dr. Hill room. Nobody stayed in it unless he wasn't in town and every other nook and cranny in the house was filled up. Uh, He had a a seat at the end of my desk, which was a boardroom table, and that was Dr. Hill's seat in it, and all other seats and most standing areas had to be full and him out of town before anybody sat in it. And uh, so we became buddies, and slowly, grandfather, uh, grandson relationship, biologically was old enough to be my great-grandfather. The day we met, he was 84, I was 25. So we went to work, and to work meant he he would sit in the office. We'd talk. We'd go out to lunch and dinner and up at the house. But during the day, he would sit there writing things, probably writing uh, one of his books. I don't know, but he would write constantly. And when the meeting that that was going on in my office, whether it was one or two people or 15, um, when it ended and people got up to leave, I always dreaded, and I'm being facetious, but hearing the door click because Dr. Hill's rule was he never asked me any serious question in front of other people, and he never criticized me in front of other people. But when the door clicked after a meeting had come to an end that he was sitting in, and he could sit in any place he wanted, go anywhere in the building, walk in on anything, sit down, start taking notes, when the door clicked, if I saw his head come up, I thought, uh-oh, uh, a cute one. One day, uh, a couple of my good friends, Wade Cannon and 
Ray Considine, friends, mentors also were in the office for some reason. And uh, Ray was proofreading something I had written, an announcement or a bulletin. And he said, uh, you sure like exclamation marks. And uh, I said, yeah, I do. They're like salt and pepper. They punch up a sentence and and so on. And they went back to working on the proof. Then they left. Door clicks. Dr. Hill looked up and said, that wasn't a compliment. I said, what wasn't a compliment? He said, said, let me translate it for you. You use too many exclamation marks. And uh, I said, why didn't you tell me? He said, I hadn't gotten that far yet. Uh, But he said, pick up the newspaper when we go home tonight and read through it and count the exclamation marks you find in the newspaper. Oh, I did. The answer was none. None. (laughs) They don't exist in newspapers. They work on the quality of their writing, not yelling at you. So uh, that that was the type of thing. He would sit quietly and then uh, uh, another quick one. We were putting together a product line of men's cosmetics, which seemed sort of normal today they're all over the place but back then that was cutting edge because real men uh, didn't use cosmetics they might use old spice aftershave or aqua velva and that was about as far as it went well we decided to come out with a line of men's cosmetics not not base and that stuff so much but things to make the skin better tighter smell make you smell better and so on dr hills there we're discussing this he goes back to South Carolina, comes back a week or two later. We're discussing this. Uh, goes away, comes back. We're discussing this. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the paralysis was uh, uh, paralysis analysis. by analysis. Yeah, analysis that I do it all the time. I catch myself doing it. Really, it's just procrastination because you don't want to do it. So you find a way exactly. to get yourself out of it, or, or you're or you're afraid to do it, which maybe was what was going on. I really it's, it's sort of hard to believe now, but I was the head of the company, so it must have been me. Uh, meeting ends, they get out, door clicks, and he, uh, oh, and we agreed to meet again the following week. And uh, door clicks, and Dr. Hill says, Ben, uh, what are you going to know next week about eight or nine products? that you don't know now. You're in the cosmetic business. You've got a manufacturing facility. You've got an art department. How complicated could this be? And I said, uh, I don't know. He said, take action. He said, here's what you're doing, Ben. You're dithering. That's a word from his generation. I love that word. I use it. I catch yeah, myself well, dithering. And I'll, I'll say, Denise, you're dithering. I know. And off I go to dither some more. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do a slap up job of it. And then I start laughing yep. at myself, and then I get back to work. Exactly. So anyway, uh, I said, he said, you're dithering, take action. So I buzzed my executive assistant, secretary, Marty, Marty Conley, and told her, regathered the crowd. She gets everybody back in there. And I said, uh, Dr. Hill and I have been chatting. Let me ask you something. Is there anything any of you need to know that you don't know now to do your share of the project? Legal department? No, got it. Production? No, got it. We can make it uh, packaging designed 30 days ago or whatever. And 
all the way around the table. And then it dawned on me, I'm the, I'm the only one I haven't asked that question of. <laughs> and I wasn't anything I needed because uh, I'm, I'm a generalist. I didn't know much about what any of them did. But if they were happy, I was happy. I said, all right, let's go. 30 days later, we were shipping it. Manufactured the product, put the packaging together, the boxing, everything, the national advertising announced to the field. 30 days after take action, Ben, we were shipping a product. And uh, it was a, a big hit, very successful product line. But that, I was dithering. And Dr. Hill told me how not to do that. But he didn't tell me in front of them. It was like I they left, and in the next 10 or 15 minutes, I got smart all on my own. Yeah, of course, it was all you, Ben. I know. I know. <laughs> that wasn't sarcasm. That was me being sardonic. There's a difference. Thank you very much. There is a difference between sardonic, sardonic <laughs> and sarcastic. One is high-class sarcastic. <laughs> Anyway, he uh, was a huge help to me in that way. And one last Dr. Hill story. Towards the end of the first year, he began hinting that he would like to go forward. Well, I sort of assumed that was going to happen. I looked at him like, you know, an, an employee. He was hired, and, of course, we'd go on. And I said, uh, well, of course. He said, well, is, is that okay? And I said, why wouldn't it be okay? He said, well, Bill hired me for one year. And that year's about up. So I went to Bill Patrick and I said, uh, Dr. Hill is hinting that he would like to go forward. That's the good news. He's hinting he would like to be paid another $50,000. And Bill said, well, uh, that's up to you. And I didn't know if he was talking to me, Ben Gay, or me, the president of the company. There's, that's two different checking accounts. And uh, I said, well, what do you think I ought to do? He said, do whatever you want. It's your money. And that uh, cleared it up for me. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so uh, that night up at the house, uh, Marsha and I, the wife at the time, and Dr. Hill and I had a little chat, and the relationship would stay the same and everything, but this check wouldn't say Holly Magic Cosmetics. It would say Ben and Marsha Gay. And uh, if anything, I don't know what else he could have done, but if anything he worked harder and was more attentive when he realized he was spending my money. And every time I tell that story, I put this tagline on it. He worked for me for two and a half years. We paid him at the first of each year. I paid Bill Patrick and the company paid the first year. I paid the second year. And I really don't remember it being an issue. That's the reason I don't remember the date or anything. But I'm confident I had already paid him for the third year when he died. And he died. I say two and a half years after we started, he went into decline right about the end of the second year and, and was doing less and less for us or anybody and faded away. So I believe if I could find someone legally responsible in the Nightingale, excuse me, in the uh, Dr. Napoleon Hill's organization, they owe me $25,000 for the half a year I didn't get. <laughs> Good luck with that. But I can't. Yeah, I can't find anybody who'll fess up to it. No. Even Don Green, the head of the association, said, I didn't even know him back then. So <laughs> it was the end of that. Well, 
I promise you that check is somewhere under glass and it says open up only when critical or smashes <laughs> this glass in case of emergency and no emergency is ever going to happen. That's gone. It's You're never getting that. But you had, I mean, how many people, I don't think anybody other than you can say that you spent two and a half years with Napoleon Hill. I mean, it just doesn't well, happen. Not- Living, not many, and he didn't like to do one-on-one mentoring. He preferred (coughs) group seminars where he could talk to more people at once, and he wasn't a great speaker, so he really didn't do that much of that. Dr. Hill was a writer. He was, yeah. A a brilliant writer. He wrote constantly. Uh, I don't, I probably lost it in a divorce or something, but I had the typewriter Late at night in our house in Marin County, I could hear tap, 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 tap. He wasn't a high-speed typist, but uh, he was down there at midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, writing something. And I hadn't asked him to write anything, so it must have been the next book or whatever. But anyway, great guy, and that's how it happened. Here's what really happened, Denise. I was in the catbird seat. I was president deserved or not, I was president of the largest direct sales, multi-level marketing company on the planet at the time, bigger than Amway and Shackley combined at the time. And uh, we were the, we were the what's happening company. Uh, If you wanted to speak to 15 or 20,000 people and spread your name and sell some records or tapes or whatever we had uh, when you spoke, uh, you needed to get in front of a holiday magic meeting. And we had hundreds of them every day, uh, big ones, dozens a month somewhere, 20 different uh, companies, different products, same marketing plan in 20 different countries. And if you wanted to get up in front of one of those groups, other than a little weekend meeting or something, but if be an official guy or a, gay, a gal in front of one of those groups, you had to speak to me. So, When you say, Ben, yeah. I'm, I need to back up a bit because now I'm a little bit confused. When, mm-hmm. when you say get in front of one of these groups, are we talking kind of like, oh, I don't know, you know, drug people, you know, the people that go to the doctor's office and say, you want this. I don't know what you call them. Um, but are, are we talking about people who were in sales? Why would they want to get in front of your groups? Uh, the people who were from the stage, they wanted to get in front of the groups to build their name. We were the biggest, hottest show going. Okay. Uh, they, wanted to sell, they wanted to sell their records. Cabot okay. Roberts, the founder of the modern speaking industry, yeah, would go yeah. anywhere and pay his own expenses if you would guarantee a strong endorsement and 100 people in the room. Well, we paid a fee to be on our stage, and you got to speak to thousands of people all at once and okay. sort of get our endorsement. Gotcha. That was a good place. If, if I hadn't been president of the company and had to do it, I would have been fighting to get on, on their stage anyway. So, well, that makes that, that sense. The reason. Yeah, that well, makes sense. And you're it, talking about it, Cabot it, Roberts, my friend Jim Tunney. You've heard me talk about him. Jim Tunney is mm-hmm. the dean of NFL referees, and he was a speaker for a long time. In fact, he was the president at one time, yes. and he won the Cabot Award. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, the, those were the people I was associating with, and people would say, "Well, how did you meet Ogmandino?" And I, and I yeah, that's another one. Yeah. I probably I went to the bathroom 
and he was in the hallway. I mean, they, the place was crawling with people like that. Earl Nightingale had his own company. He was running his own radio shows, but he was an employee of mine. We were we were their largest customer. So uh, one day uh, up at that, you're talking about Dr. Hill a moment ago, uh, one day up at the house, the day I joined the business, Bill Dempsey said, you're young and inexperienced. That was an understatement. But he said, so I'm going to give you two things that will help you. And he gave me an old beat up copy of Think and Grow Rich, Dr. Hill's famous book. And he gave me a record, 33 and a third record um, called The Strangest Secret. The, many years, yep. yeah, the largest selling non-entertainment recording in history. It's sitting right here. I'm, I'm literally touching it with my right hand now. And uh, so he said, you know, listen to this, read this. Well, I know who either one of the people were, but I did. And oh, two and a half years later, I'm president of the company sitting in my big house in Wren County overlooking San Francisco Bay. And that weekend, we had two guests, house guests, Earl Nightingale and Dr. Napoleon Hill. By coincidence, it wasn't a meeting. They just both wanted to be out or they were in the area at the same time or whatever. And one of them, I don't remember which one said, I told them that story that I got the record and the book on the first day and so on. And one of them said, well, did it help? Oh, did they help? And yeah. I, I looked slowly around the living room and through the huge plate glass windows overlooking San yeah. Francisco Bay. And I said, yeah, I think so. And Just you both work for me. Oh, <laughs> So, yeah, it helped. It worked. <laughs> Didn't you tell me, and I may be, you know, this coming out of left field, I may be imagining this, but didn't you tell me those two didn't really like each other? Dr. Hill never expressed it one way or the other. He was sort of mild-mannered. He's not a yeller or anything. Earl was rather outspoken, and he didn't he didn't respect uh, Dr. Hill like many people do and like I did. Uh, he even said in a recording explaining where the strangest secret came from, it's in one of the recordings. He said, and there I was sitting in my house one day, reading in my, in my uh, study. Re regular people don't sit in houses. I mean, superstars, they sit in their study. And uh, he said, I was sitting in my study reading this book. He didn't say what it was yet. He said, I thought it was poorly written, uh, stiff sentences. Uh, I, I wasn't impressed. And I was just about to put it down when I came across a sentence, and I think in the recording it gives the page number of the edition he was looking at. He said, I came upon this sentence, you become what you think about. Think. Yep. And he said, there it was. That was The Stranger's Secret, which he titled it and then went on and made an entire recording about it in 1956. Uh, so before I met either one of them, he's telling me, think and go rich sucks. <laughs> for some reason, he didn't care for it and therefore didn't have great respect for the author. They were civil to each other, went on boat rides. I took them out on the bay numerous times. Earl loved the water. Dr. Hill went along because he wasn't supposed to get far away from me. 
and uh, we would cruise around San Francisco Bay. Earl, we had a swell one day. I don't know what you call it, a trough, I guess, inverted swell. And I wasn't paying attention. I was captaining the boat. I was in, I was in the Coast Guard. I should have known better, but I didn't catch it. And the bow of the boat, this was a small cabin cruiser, about 45 feet. The bow of the boat just went out of sight. I mean, right down the side of the trough and popped back up. Earl was standing on the bow drinking a bourbon and soda, looking out over San Francisco Bay. And when I got back up, it knocked me to my knees. When I got back up and looked out, he wasn't there. Oh, oh God. I killed and, her already, uh, Gail. How do you yeah, explain that yeah. when you get home? Yeah. So he, uh, I did, you know, pull the throttle back, whatever, ran around and went up on the bow. And I saw this leg wrapped around a stanchion, you know, where the, uh, it, it is a stanchion with the poles go up to the railing and so on. That, yeah. And he had gone off the edge, but had hooked his leg on that probably accidentally. It just happened. And there he was hanging upside down in San Francisco Bay. I pulled him back up and he can't, I like to tell the story. He didn't spill his drink. He did. But when he came up over the side, his cocktail glass was still in his hand and it had liquid in it. Now it was probably seawater, but the way I used to tell the story, it was bourbon he didn't spill. So I got him back up on the boat and I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That is my fault. Uh, he says, Ben, don't worry about it. He was on the Arizona at Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, when the ship was blown out from under him, mm -hmm. which enabled him to jump into the water instead of onto the flaming deck that survived. And he said, Ben, if the Japanese didn't get me at Pearl Harbor, Ben Gay is going to get me in San Francisco Bay. <laughs> well, that's one way to make you sound so unimportant. <laughs> I, mean, <that's> just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, you're just being gay. Now, Pearl Harbor, that was a different thing. <laughs> I would have loved to meet him. I bet we'd either get along really well or not at all. And I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. No, so you get along with him wonderfully. He was, you were talking about sardonic earlier. He was sardonic. Yeah, I've heard. And, you know, sarcasm is, I I tried, I try not to be sarcastic, but it, you, know, it's, you either have it in your DNA or you don't. And I live in Catholic country. I know I've, I've shared this with you before, and I'm not Catholic, but all of my neighbors are. So every year at Lent, I go along with it and I try to give up something every year for, for Lent. Well, I, they finally caught on that I was giving up chocolate because I hate the stuff. So things you're cheating. I know. I know. But, okay, fine. So I tried to give up sarcasm, and that was about the worst three minutes of my life. It didn't. It, it was. I can imagine. Wasn't that agony? It was horrible. I said, right, I'm giving up chocolate. I said, okay, go for it. <laughs> do what you do best. Okay. My but mother what? was a Roman, Roman Catholic from Boston. And so she observed Lent and so on. I was raised in a congregational church because it was a compromise. Dad was a Southern Baptist. Mom was a Roman Catholic from Boston. When she married my dad, she was excommunicated. Hmm. So we went to we went to the congressional the congregational church, and it was uh, I would sit in the middle with my sister when she got old enough. Mother would secretly to my right be a Catholic, 
dad would secretly be to my left would would be to my left and secretly be a Baptist. And as long as I didn't get into a discussion about it, that was it. But I did have to give up something for Lent every year, and I chose and still do it to give up Brussels sprouts. Oh, I like Brussels sprouts. Don't like chocolate. Well, <laughs> I look at Brussels sprouts like you look at chocolate. It was not a sacrifice. In fact, I believe in it so much, I gave up Brussels sprouts all year long and half for 50 years. Now that's dedication. It really is. I mean, that is a man of faith right there. But where was Dr. Napoleon Hill during all of this? I mean, he obviously didn't have a bourbon to spill. Where was he? He was sitting on the stern of the boat, the rear deck, in a folding aluminum lawn chair, which never should have been on the boat, but it was comfortable for him instead of one of those stools. And uh, after I got Earl under control, I, I was more concerned about Earl because he was missing. <laughs> you know, when we came back down the side, there was Dr. Hill. Maybe his chair had been askew, but he was sitting there almost like it didn't happen. And uh, he was fine. Didn't, didn't fall down, didn't break anything or whatever. Nor did anyone else on the boat. The only two people that I know hit the deck was Earl and me. Could have and I was dreading so picking up the radio, and, and I was dreading picking up the radio and making the call to the Coast Guard station, because on my reserve duty, I was stationed on San Francisco Bay, right under the Golden Gate Bridge, picking up uh, jumpers and drunk sailors, and I have to phone in and go, "Hello, this is Ben Gay, first class boatswain mate. My my boat is sinking because I made a stupid mistake, but it turned out it was no problem." Oh, thank goodness. But it's a great story. And you know what? We have not talked about the real objection as you at all. But I'll tell you, I love to hear these stories. And I think it gives people a very strong indication of who you are and why you are who you are and where you are in the sales hierarchy, which is at the very top, as far as I'm concerned. So we will pick that story up next week or we'll give it a shot. But, I, you know, I remember telling you when we started this podcast, a lot of what you tell me I think needs to go into a book about your autobiography and I'm perfectly willing to get all this down on paper and hand it to you and say, publish this, get busy. (laughs) So (laughs) I'll probably give you homework when it's, if it's all ever said and done. But before we, we've got about four more minutes. What other story do you want to share with us that I haven't thought to ask? Because when I tell you, I love these stories. I'm not kidding. Well, let me tie a story together and fulfill somewhat of a commitment. What we were going to discuss today was it's you. The problem is you. And I've opened a lot of seminars with this. Uh, Lewis and Clark were sent out by Lincoln or whatever president sent them out to find out what was in the West, on the West Coast, what they had bought in the Louisiana Purchase or whatever, and to report back to the White House. Uh, what they had found. On a similar note, my mentors, Dr. Napoleon Hill and Earl Nightingale and all, sent me out figuratively to find out what the problem was with salespeople. And I will tell this to the audience I'm addressing. And I said, so I went out and I studied for four or five years, like Dr. Hill did, interviewing 500 terribly successful people to find out their secrets. 
Well, here's what I discovered in my quest. It's you assuming that you followed some of my early rules, quality product that's competitively priced. You spend your day talking to qualified people or writing to them or emailing them or however you sell. Uh, the, uh, the products and the services and so on, you've already qualified them. They're good. And if you can't sell them, it's you. And the reason you can't sell them is most salespeople don't regard selling as a profession. They got into it like I got into it. They weren't qualified to do anything else. Bill Dempsey used to carry a little, he was my sponsor in Holiday Magic, used to carry a little pocket mirror in his, in his side pocket, suit pocket, like you probably carry in your purse, you know, about the size of a playing card. And people say, well, I don't know if I'm qualified. Bill would put out the mirror, pull out the mirror and put it under their nose. And he'd pull it back and he'd say, yep, I got vapor. You're qualified. <laughs> I I'll, forgot. I, I'll teach you. Story. Yeah, I'll teach you everything else you need to know. Well, that's where the problem starts. You have to be willing to learn those things. And just wrapping up, if you hear price objection, price objection, price objection, it's one of two things. You didn't check out the product or service enough, and it is overpriced. Or B, and much more likely, you're like typhoid Mary. You're a carrier of the disease. You believe it's overpriced. And through auto transmission, if that's a word, uh, all of your customers come to the same conclusion. It's not the product. It's you. And, you know, Ben, and I think you and I have talked about this either offline or online. I'm, I'm never sure what we talk about. We chat so much. But one of the things that I have noticed about truly great salespeople, whatever they're selling, is they believe in it. They're not blowing mm -hmm. smoke. They're not trying to get you to buy their widget because they need to pay their mortgage on Wednesday. They believe in it. They genuinely think that you need it. It will help you. It will aid and abet you in some way, or they're not going to be trying to sell it to you. And those are the people, and you and I have talked about this before, you have to know them, like them, trust them. And what was the, the last one? Have them feel safe with you. Right. That's exactly right. And listen, for all the garbage that's going on in the world, we still, most of us have pretty good spidey sense. We can tell when we're being dragged down that rabbit hole and we're going to say yep. no. And those objections will be forevermore because you're trying to sell me something I don't want. It won't help me. And I don't like you. <laughs> mainly, mainly. Yeah, I, don't I don't like, like you. you. Yeah. And I have been known to say that, by the way, I don't have any filters, so you know, I have to be careful who I get around. But, but it's true. I mean, if you're selling something just because you've got to pay your bills, that desperation is going to show up and you're not going to make sales. Or if you do, there's going to be that five minute, oh, I want my money back. You know, there's going to be that, oh, heck, now get, I'm out of here. Give me my money back. It's going to happen. There's remorse. You yeah, that's exactly right. Hugh Harris, one of the greatest salespeople that ever lived, he used to be in the home improvement business. He's now building very successful restaurants in Georgia uh, for the same reason. He's a great promoter, knows what he's doing. He's turned a little sleepy restaurant into a place you almost can't get into with car nights, with 400 cars that show up to show off, bicycle nights when the Harleys all come in 
and great Southern food. And what he says about what you're talking about, that desperation, he said, I can't stand the smell of commission breath. Oh, I like that. Repeat that. Yeah. Say it again. He said, I can't stand the smell of commission breath. Oh, my gosh. When that's a salesperson a calls on him and they're there for the commission not to help him or her. And you don't have to be, you know, let's say somebody calls on themselves in a deep fat fryer. They don't have to be passionately in love with deep fat fryers, but they have to research it to know that this is as good or the best deep fat fryer on earth and you're in the restaurant business. So I'm here to save you uh, and save you money and time and quality and get you quality and so on. So that's the difference. You don't have to, I, I could sell oil tankers. I don't need one. I don't know much about them other than I was in the Coast Guard uh, and, and so on. But if I knew it was the best oil tanker on earth at a good price with good service guarantees and so on, I could enthusiastically sell oil tankers. Right. And see, on the rare occasions, it has been a long, long time since I've done this, but I would put out a resume, think, oh, I'll get a job, job. You know, this working for myself, I don't like my my boss. She's kind of a witch. Eh, yes, I'll get a job, job. <laughs> Without fail, I get buried under insurance companies wanting to hire me right then, right there on the spot. I don't like insurance. I don't like the industry. Mm-hmm. I don't like how skeevy it is. I don't trust them or politicians. They all kind of fall in that same group of ick for me. I would never be able to sell insurance for any reason. I'd have to be starving to death. And even then, I think I'd go mow the lawn, take my chances on throwing up on my feet. Yeah, I just (laughs) wouldn't do it. And that's a given, by the way. If I get overheated, down I go. (laughs) Anyway, well, listen, everybody, thank you for spending time with us each week. And we genuinely hope that you'll join us each Wednesday on your partner in Success Radio. And through the magic of storytelling, which we've been doing this past hour, and I'm just so happy. I've got a big smile on my face. We delve deep into the realm of sales and we unravel the mysteries behind effective closing techniques. And when I say we, I mean, Ben, I just ask the questions. So join us as we embark on a journey to help you master the art of closing Whether you're a seasoned sales professional or just starting your career, this podcast is for you. And we talk a lot about the closers, one and two. Ben, do me a favor. Tell people where they can get those. Because listen, when y'all listening to us, you need to have those books on your desk. And a highlighter. Have a yellow highlighter handy. Yeah, that's crucial. Uh, I'll give you the, the, the exact address to go to for the best prices, free shipping and a lifetime guarantee uh, that is stores s-t-o-r-e-s dot ebay dot com c-o-m forward slash one word ronzoni books r-o-n-z-o-n-e books b-o-o-k-s and if you forget all that, just Google Ben Gay the Third. But now you got to scroll through 50 or 60 sites, some of them selling the closers, and it isn't us. So uh, go to where I know you'll get what you asked for, and you get the guarantee, and uh, you bring them to me for signing and dating. So it'll be just like you bought it for me, but for less money. 
Yeah, my books are signed. I've had them for years, and I think you actually personalized mine with my name on it and everything. So and everything <laughs> and everything. So thank you, Ben. We're going to try again next week to talk about you know page fifty nine, and we will get there. But listen, in the meantime, everybody, find Ben. You can and oh, and I need to mention that we get a lot of questions on sales and success and leadership send them to us. We're happy to to respond to them and talk with you as best as we can on the the show. So just send them. You can find us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and your partner in Success Radio. You can't throw a stick on the internet without hitting that. So we are easy to find and we are here to help. So this podcast, honestly, can be heard wherever you consume your, your favorite podcast, from Apple to Audible. And Ben and I look forward to connecting with you. Ben, Thank you, as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, dear. I appreciate it. You're the best. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.